Well, we are um, looking through Acts and thinking about what does it mean to be Jesus' spirit-filled witnesses? What does it mean to be uh, Christ's church left here um, to, to be his hands and his feet? Um, uh, one of the things that we, we've seen so far is that um, this is the commission that Jesus has given or gives his disciples. They meet with Jesus after, after he's risen uh, from the dead. He teaches them and then he commissions them as he's about to leave them and says, here's your task. Okay? I want you to go. Number one. Uh, Jerusalem, uh, Samaria, Judah, to the very ends of the earth. I want you to go. And the, and the reason I want you to go is I've got a special task for you to do I want you to proclaim salvation in my name, teaching them everything I commanded you to do, and baptizing folks in the name of the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so uh, they're told, you know, this is your your, your commission, but it says, wait, wait until you receive the Holy Spirit, because the task I want you to do, you cannot do without the Holy Spirit's work. It's not a human task. It's a spiritual task that God is doing, of which you're joining in on. So if you want to join in God's task, you've got to be united with, with, with God, not just in mind, but in spirit. And God says, I'm going to empower you by giving you the very presence of God living in you. You're going to become temples of the Holy Spirit. Temple is this idea, where does God dwell? Old Testament, temple. Yeah? Uh, what, tabernacle? temple. Where does he live? In the new church? In his people. The new temple. So in one sense, we are like a little mini temple, but when we're all added together, we're like a big temple. Uh, So we're like a community that's a temple. God's spirit lives in us, and that God's spirit wants us to live for God in all of life. To be his witnesses, both in word and in deed. And that's what what, the, what uh, these disciples uh, have been taught, and this is what we start to see them do. They start to live for God, proclaiming his excellencies to anybody who will listen, and doing things that attest the power of the kingdom of God. And we've talked about this before, uh, but I'll just repeat it again. You know, when we see these, these miracles, what's happening is the power of God is being revealed. Okay? So there's a healing, or someone with a, who's demon-possessed is being cast out. It's the fruit of the kingdom. He's like cleansing people. But he's, he's like showing you physically the spiritual reality that God wants to do in everybody's life. So those who are spiritually sick, he wants to heal. Now again, I want to say this clearly, that doesn't diminish the physicalness. No, because when, we, when, when Christ comes again, and we're united to be with him, in, we come into his new kingdom, we'll be given uh, bodies that do not uh, fade or destroy. You know, we'll be given immortal bodies. So there is something about the, the spirit and the body being united that we don't want to just separate and say it's unimportant. Um, but what we do see is that these miracles are attesting God is real, he's powerful, he can do what he says he can do. And God still does those things today. 
But in addition, what we're starting to see is that people are starting to see the way in which folks are living. And this is also attesting to the power of God. Okay? Notice it talked about how folks um, saw the way that they, they lived, and they, people were added to their number, but also they were a little bit concerned about what other folks thought of them. Um, so they didn't completely associate with them in the temple, but in their hearts and their minds, they'd come to believe in Jesus. And I believe that these guys... You know, ultimately, would have been folks who were meeting in house churches or in houses, um, you know, reading God's word. They were part of God's people. Um, so the way we live hugely impacts the power. Um, no, let me rephrase that. The way we live attests to the power of God that He is able to change us, transform us, and renew us into his people. It separates us out from others who are living for themselves and trying to find ways of um, f- finding solutions to, the, to the, the, the human condition in other ways. No, we're a people who turn to God and let God work in us to transform us and to change us. And when we come to this chapter 5, uh, from verse 12 onwards, this is the second time we, we see this persecution or opposition that they're facing. You know, we see some wonderful things that they're doing, but now Luke is introducing us to this idea that to be a follower of Jesus is to face persecution. That there is no way of avoiding persecution if you're going to follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you for following me. Uh, in fact, in 2 Timothy 3:12 to 14, it says this, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learnt it. So part of the Christian life, living a godly life, we will be persecuted. So I think we've got to embrace that. We've got to embrace that there are going to be situations that we're going to face, whether it's direct persecution, whether it's subtle persecution, in terms of you can't really see it, but you feel it, it's in the culture, it's sort of around you, it's you know, it's like um, a pressure upon us, even though it's not a person giving us the pressure, maybe it's just the, the context. And we're also going to face opposition as well. Um, so that sort of op- opposition could be that even our own spirits oppose us, you know, our own fleshly spirits oppose what God wants to do in our, in our lives, and we might be a bit torn. But the two things that really stand out for me from this passage is the way... Um, the people of God respond and the way the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the the ruling council, respond. I think what we see here in the ruling council is they're responding by fear. Okay? And then what we see in the disciples is they're responding in faith. So the things that they do, they're doing because they have faith in Jesus Christ. That he is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the one who's promised them things and they believe in the promises that Jesus has told them. 
On the other hand, the Sanhedrin, they're responding in fear. Look at verse 17, just to sort of draw this out. It says, The high priest and all the, his associates, who were the members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Jealousy. It's a weird thing to be filled with when God is doing amazing things. Well, we know that they were filled with jealousy because it wasn't just about God's kingdom that they were concerned. It was about their kingdom, about keeping the peace, keeping the power, keeping their influence. These were the noble people, or the rich people, uh, the learned people, the respected people, and they were the ones who shaped what the political and religious life of the nation of Israel was like. And so when they saw people following these disciples and turning to God in faith, or in their view, maybe turning to a sect, they were filled with jealousy. These disciples had the sort of influence that's it's hard to get. I mean, they weren't really doing anything or asking people to do that much. They were just healing people and proclaiming salvation in Jesus' name and hope in Jesus' name, and people were turning to them. They were not trying to lead them or have power and authority over them. They were just speaking the truth and trying to, to point them towards God. And the uprising was amazing. We're told... 3,000, 5,000, daily people being added to the number who were following the, 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 the way of the Lord. They were, they were following Jesus. And these guys were filled with jealousy. And they were motivated by fear. Let's see this repeated in verse 33, this idea of them having fear. It says, when they heard this, and this is when Peter explains them basically, the one that you put on the cross. He was the Christ. He was the Lord. He was the Saviour. And you were guilty of it. He says, when they heard this, they were furious. Furious. And wanted to put them to death. And even though Gamil counseled them not to do that, we read in verse 40, they still wanted to express their their power over them, not by just telling them not to speak, which is what we see over and over again. They're saying, do not speak in the name of Jesus. Do not speak in the name of Jesus. We looked at this two or three weeks ago. You know, that is what our, our enemy wants us to do, not to speak or live in the name of Jesus. He wants us to keep it quiet. He wants to keep, it, us, keep us to do our acts privately and secretly. Well... But Jesus wants us to do something else. We remember uh, Jesus saying, you know, don't, don't put your light, uh, put your lamp you know, under a bushel. You know, uh, you are the light of the world. Um, we're, we're told that the things that we're to do, are to, we're to do so that everybody or anybody can see them. Or at least we're not afraid that anybody and everybody can, can see them. But these guys, uh, they want them to be quiet. They want to oppress them. 
I want you to tell them, no, do not speak. And, you know, it is fair, isn't it? Uh, I would be surprised if any one of us here don't, doesn't feel the, the, the sort of, uh, some sort of internal or external pressure to not speak. It could be just our own fears. Uh, but it could be just we see, you know, what happens to people who put their head above the parapet. I was sharing a, um, last week <coughs> at a men's retreat that one of our friends who's here in Birmingham, uh, a, a man named um, Nadim, who does um, a lot of engagement in the Pakistani Muslim community around the city, and is often having dialogue and conversations with individuals and also doing some stuff on the streets as well to engage with folks there. Uh, before Christmas he received death threats, serious death threats, not just please be quiet. Um, he received death threats and he was asked uh, by uh, some radicals to, to be careful that he spoke again. And then he continued to speak, and then after Christmas, in just the last few weeks, he received credible death threats again. We don't think it happens in our city, do we? Um, we think this is for somewhere else. Maybe this is for, you know, uh, these things happen in other countries where um, uh, you would expect those things. But no, these are, these are things that are happening today when we stand up for our faith we might come to some other stories that we've read in the press where it seems anybody who stands up for Jesus and says I've got a faith in Christianity and this means I can't act this way and only act this way what happens to them is not good it rarely works out well for them when we read the press so it wouldn't surprise us that each of us in our hearts just had a little bit of worry or concern or anxiety about what it might be if we truly lived lives where we were open about our love for Jesus and declared our belief that Jesus is the only God, that salvation is only found in his name. That we all need to come to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to receive salvation. It wouldn't be a surprise to me. I recognise it in my own heart. And even though, like here, that Gamal tells them to be quiet, they still oppress them by flogging. And they're ordered to go, don't speak in Jesus' name. But I want you to see the response of the disciples, because this is important to us. This is significant. Because I think if we, we don't understand how they were able to respond in this way, then I think we ourselves might find ourselves just trying to avoid persecution, trying to avoid difficulties, trying to avoid putting our head above, above the parapet. What did it say? Verse 41, if you've got your Bibles open. They left Sanhedrin, and what were they doing? They were crying, and they were licking their wounds, and they said, we're never doing that again. Goodness me, they've taught us a lesson. Yeah. Is that what it says? Yeah. When you put your Bibles out, you should be checking that and saying, get down there, false teacher. <laughs> they were rejoicing. Rejoicing. Uh, I don't know 
maybe they were doing a jig. I don't know what sort of rejoicing they were doing. Was it an internal rejoicing? Was it an external rejoicing? I think they were... I don't know. Something about it was otherly, because I think if I received a flogging, I might be feeling a little bit sorry for myself. These guys don't seem to be flogging, uh, feeling sorry for themselves at all. The opposite. They're rejoicing. Now, again, oh, it's Bible times. It's Bible times. In Bible times, things were different. You know, the Spirit was so heavy upon them that they kind of created a veil. It probably didn't even hurt to be flogged. I mean, every flog was basically just a sweet brush of Jesus' blessing on their back. You know? Um, you know, maybe it just didn't hurt so much because the Spirit was so thick in those days. Um, maybe they just, like, were just so caught up in the euphoria of following Jesus that they just didn't have their right minds on. You know, they weren't in their right minds. Well, I probably think they were probably in their right minds. They were in their right minds. I'll come to why that was in a moment, why faith totally changes the way you see these things. But they were rejoicing. And they said they counted themselves worthy to suffer disgrace in the name, in the name, in the name of Jesus. They counted it, they they saw themselves as being worthy. Like, it was almost like a badge of honour. We stand firm. We didn't wilt. And these guys have come against us like Jesus said they would, and we did not back down. These stripes are a badge of honour. We we now joined in with Jesus, who was whipped and beaten, who was mocked and spat upon. He asked us to obey him, and we did. He asked us to stand firm in his name, and we did. Maybe they can hear Jesus whispering to them, good and faithful servants, thank you for standing in my name. I knew you would. Peter, I know you denied me before, but you stood firm. You stood firm, why? Because you had faith. You believed that there were better promises. You believed that it was better to trust and believe in the one true God than to obey human authorities who want you to stop doing what I've asked you to do. And rather than stop talking, what do they do? Well, day after day, not once, day after day in the temple courses, verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited saviour not just of Israel but of all people who believe they never stopped What motivated them to never stop? What was stirring their hearts to never stop? What was helping them to stand firm when they could have easily given up? Faith. We see they have this courage. I was reflecting on this the other day. This idea of courage. When we look at it, I often say, oh look, these guys had, had courageous faith. And then I started to think about that and say, well, wait a minute, is there, is there 
is this a different brand, brand uh, like a brand of faith that I'm talking about here? I said they had courageous faith, like the faith they had was courageous. Uh, but there's, a, you know, there's another brand of, of faith that isn't courageous. And I realized, actually, it probably wasn't great just to stick those two words together, to say there was faith and, and, and uh, you know, there was courageous faith, as if it's a, a type of faith. I think it was better to think that when we see these guys being courageous, it's because of faith. That faith, amongst other things, makes you courageous. So we're not, we're not aiming to say, Lord, give me courage, though that's a good prayer to pray. We're praying, Lord, give me faith to be, to be courageous. Um, think about the idea of fight or flight. When you come into any situation, what are you weighing up? Well, you're weighing up lots of different factors, aren't you? You're weighing up, like, maybe it's like, what are the forces at work here? Yeah? There's a bear. He's big. He's grizzly. Yeah? Is he stronger than me? You're working it out. You're saying, yes, he's stronger than me. Can he take me down? Yes, he could take me down. Then you look and say, but there's my family. And there are other forces that are working you, isn't there? It's like, this is my family. Ah, I've got to get in the way. This does not make any sense whatsoever in human terms or physical terms. Uh, uh, but I've got to protect my family. I want my family to get away. We're, we're working out what is the right thing to do. And ultimately we're working out what is the most important thing here. And then we respond to that. Does that make sense? So sometimes in flight it might be that, you know, we just need to go because our, our life is more important than what's taking place. And that's why we flight. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good fear. It produces in us saying, ooh, be careful, you need to remove yourself from this situation. But when we look at these situations here with the disciples, what we see is when they're weighing these things up and they're asking the question, do I fight or do I fight or do I stand or do I leave? Do I have courage or do I wilt? They're weighing up factors. And the factor here is, who should I obey? Who is the one who is powerful? What thing is most important here? And what they discover is, and what they've learned is, the kingdom of God, God himself, my, my trust in who he is, and his power to keep me, uh, to, 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 uh, uh, to, to look after me, I'm no longer worried about these people over here because I believe that God is able to ask uh, to take care of me. Why? Because he's asked me to do something. And I'm doing what he's asked me to do. He's promised that he's going to never leave me nor, nor forsake me. I believe in it. I have faith in that. I believe that to be true. That's why they're courageous. Does that make sense? It's not because they weighed it up and said, oh, I think, you know, the worst that we're going to get away with is a flogging. Let's do it anyway. They're like, no. I trust in God. My hope is in him. I believe in his promises. I believe in his love for me. I believe that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. As Paul describes in Romans. That's the sort of thinking that these disciples had. And this is the sort of thinking that God wants us to have. 
if we're going to live lives that are courageous to love people, to share Christ with people, we don't do that just by finding situations that we think we can handle in our human terms. We do that by turning our face and looking upon Christ. We look to Christ and say, is there anyone who showed love better? Is there anyone here who has died for me like he died for me? Is there anybody here who has prom- who's kept his promises? Is there anybody here who's proved himself like Jesus? And the answer is no. So it's like, my hope is going to be in Jesus. Do I trust myself? No. Do I believe I can help myself? No. Do I believe other people can help me? Yes, in a little way. Do I think other people could hurt me? Yes, but only temporarily. My hope is in Jesus. I believe God is calling us to say, you know what? To be my spiritual witnesses. Yes, pray for courage. I want you to have courage. But the way you have courage is you turn yourself to me. Maybe we need courage in a number of different areas. I'm just going to finish with a few things that you can ponder in on and then there's a uh, conversation that we can have around the table. But there are four people in the Bible that I was thinking of um, that might help us. We need courage to face our past. Think about Moses. Moses had, had fled his home in Egypt. He had killed uh, an Egyptian. Uh, going back to Egypt, part of that was facing his demons, you know what I mean? Facing his past. Uh, maybe some of us need courage to face our past. We can't keep running from our past, but we've got to have courage to, to face it. This is what Moses says in Exodus 3 verse 11 to 12. Uh, but Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to, e- uh, to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will, this is God, I will be with you. And this will be a sign for you I have sent, that I have sent you. When you have brought the pe- people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Who, sh- who am I that I should go back? And God's words to him, I will be with you. Maybe some of us need to reflect and say, do I need the courage to face my past? What is it in my past that I need the courage to face? Uh, uh, the courage to face, so I can get those words out. Then David, maybe we need today the courage to face impossible situations. The book of 1 Samuel chronicles the epic power struggle between the Israelites and their chief enemy at the time, which were the Philistines. And though King Saul and the Israelite soldiers were willing to go and face the army, they were in a place of dismay and they were constantly facing the threats of the enemy giant Goliath. But filled with faith, David faces the giant. Have you ever read that story and think, this guy's stupid? (laughs) 
the living God will take them down. And everybody in Egypt's like, yay, one more, one more to the sacrificial, <laughs> to the sacrifice. Off you go, David, if you want to. Uh, and, uh, you know, King Saul tries to put armor on him, like his way of showing some sort of human protection. But, uh, but David's like, no, just send me out with my sling and a couple of stones and I'll take this dude down. How dare he defy the armies of the living God? And that's what happens, isn't it? He faces an impossible situation with faith. I don't know what your impossible situation is. Maybe you're facing one right now where you can't find the way through. You don't know what the answer is going to be. Well, David's story is hope for you. That you, if you, if we go to God and seek him, that he will lead us with all knowledge and truth. Maybe you need the courage to take a big risk. That's what's before you right now. A big risk. Like Esther, who risked her life to persuade her husband, King Xerxes, to follow the plans of Haman, to annihilate the Jews in his country. And she was motivated by faith, taught to her by her uncle Mordecai, that she would be filling the call to save God's people through her. This is what Esther says in chapter 4, verse 16. She says, Go, this is to to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights, so three days, day or night. I uh, and the young women, women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai was asking her, go to the king. You, you know, in those days, you had to have an invitation. If you went without an invitation, you were risking your life. So she knew what she was doing. It was real. This is not just a little story, you know, a nice little story in the Bible. This is real stuff. This really happened. She was risking her life to go and speak to him to save the Jews. She said, pray for me. And I need you to pray for me. Maybe you're being asked to take a big risk right now and you need the faith and you need the prayers of others to stand with you as you go and take that big risk. And then finally, maybe we need the courage to not give in like Daniel. Daniel in chapter chapter 6 of Daniel, a group of politically motivated administrators laid a trap for Daniel by manipulating the king to sign a law saying that anybody who did not worship uh, uh, him or worship any other god but him should be put to death. Daniel stood on his conviction to pray to God only. And despite the consequence of being thrown into the den of lions as a punishment, he was, div- he was motivated to face this fear because he was so grateful for God for all the ways God had blessed him and protected his life. This gratitude, this love for God produced an extraordinary confidence in God. Chapter 6 says that when the document was signed, what did he do? As soon as the document was signed, he went to his house where he had windows 
in his upper chamber so that people could see him, open towards Israel, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to his God as he had done previously. He didn't give in. He kept on doing what he knew needs to be done. He knew that he'd been told that he should worship only one God, the true God. He was not going to bow down and worship any man or any fake God, whether made of wood, bronze or stone, or any false philosophy or any other religion. No, he knew that there was one God and he should pray to him alone. And as soon as the document is signed, he said, okay, I've got to start as I mean to go on. I'm going to pray. Prayed in front of people. Daniel's courage grew through those times of prayer. Maybe you need to spend some time in prayer to have your eyes lifted off the circumstances towards your faith in God so that um, we're able to obey what God wants us to do. I just want to encourage you guys. God is with you. God is for you. The same God that we're reading about here is the same God that we serve. The same Holy Spirit that they had is the same Holy Spirit that lives in us. I, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you need courage for. One thing I do know is that we all need courage. I'm going to pray for us and then there's a, we have a little time for discussion before we finish in uh, worship. Holy Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I know that you're a God that says, uh, even the young grow weary, but those who wait on you will renew their strength. You'll give them might. You'll give them courage. We believe that to be true. So we want to put our our faith in you, we want to turn to you and say, uh, uh, we trust you, we love you, we know your heart, we know you're good, we know you're kind, we know you're generous, we know that you have protected us and looked after us, we know that you have rescued us from ourselves and from sin, we know that you've set our feet upon a rock, we know that, that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us, we, we know that, that you keep your promises. We know your spirit gives us like supernatural strength in these matters to do that which needs to be done, even though the things around us might cause us to fear. We want to be led by faith in you, motivated by faith in you. In this regard, we want to be courageous to face the things that are in front of us. We pray that you would give us confidence in you to be your witnesses in our workplace, in our families, on the campuses, on the streets, uh, with our friends around the table. We want to be, we want to be like uh, these disciples, day by day, never stopping talking about your excellencies, because they are so many. Stir our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.